Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Okay. Good morning. Um, just pray to start. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you that it's uh, a glorious day and we're mindful of your creation this morning, God, and your mercy, as we've already talked about. And we know that it's new for us this morning and we, we thank you for that, God. We thank you that you look upon us with grace and with love and with kindness, God. And uh, we gratefully receive that this morning, Lord. We ask that you'd give us ears to hear this morning that we'd receive from you. Amen. Amen. So um, we've been talking about uh, a theme of God with us. Um, I didn't hear Steve last week, so I don't really know what he talked about, and I hope I don't say lots of the same things that he said. Um, but even if I did, if it was good, then it doesn't really matter, I suppose. Um, I've been tasked with looking at the very beginning of the Bible. So we're looking at God with us. What does that mean? And how does it appear at various points with various people in the Bible? How, how is God with those people? Um, so I'm looking at Genesis 1, the story of creation and obviously Adam and Eve within that. <clears throat> so to begin with, I'm just going to read Genesis 1 uh, and a little bit of the very start of chapter 2 because for some reason the story of creation goes over two chapters in Genesis um, rather than neatly into one. Um, so if you want to read with me, you can. I'm not going to tell you off for not having a physical Bible. Um, I've, I've got a digital one. Uh, so this is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's right at the start, if you don't know your Bible that well. Um, won't be page 1, probably. You'll have like contents and stuff before that. But. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under from the firmament, from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. <clears throat> then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, and the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. 
Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw that everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus The heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So that's the story of creation as we know it. Or more accurately, the poem of creation, because it's actually written as a poem. Um... There's uh, a lot of theories out there that we've probably heard some of about how we can make it to fit with science and what science tells us about how the world and creation came to be. Um, And people will probably disagree about whether it should or shouldn't need to. But personally, I don't think it really matters that much. Um, It isn't written like a scientific treatise, but it's written as a poem. um, And it's it's more like a, it's a myth explaining the origins of the Jewish people. It's a Jewish myth. Um, and a myth doesn't mean that it's not true. Um, it's not a myth like, oh, you know, something dodgy's happened and it's just, it's, it's, it's mythological, um, like tales of King Arthur or something like that. It just means that it's, it's in the historic tradition of a particular people group. Um, it may or may not contain truth and that truth may or may not be accurate or inaccurate. Um, but it is a myth nonetheless, and historically it's said to have been compiled, if not originally written, around the 7th century BC, so 700 or so years, or 600, between 607 years before Christ, um, when Israel was in Babylonian captivity. That's the earliest written versions of it that they've, that they've discovered. Um, 
because of that, parallels are drawn between the Jewish myth and the Babylonian myth, which, so with, with Israel having been um, capti- cap- captured and made captive by Babylon, um, they were now surrounded by this new foreign culture that had a different view on how creation came to be, on who God was. And as a result of that, they were inspired um, to promote their version of their history of their creation um, as a kind of to stand against that incursion of a different culture um, and also to subvert it now it's possible that in doing that they borrowed ideas directly from the babylonian version of things to to directly subvert what was going on Um, it's also possible that the babylonian version and the jewish version actually had some common origins because they were both near eastern cultures um, and they both could have come from the original same truths about some of creation. Um, either way, uh, whether or not they did it directly to subvert Babylon, or whether they did it not not purposely for that reason as a kind of political polemic, but just that there are similarities because of a common history, um, it's really interesting, I think, to see the similarities and the differences between the Jewish and the Babylonian version. Um, not just as a study in history, but it brings like greater clarity, I think, to what uh, what is what is really being said in Genesis. Because we read it just as a standalone story, but when you when you see it in the context of the Babylonian story, that difference just brings like this incredible sharpness to it. So I'm going to look at that a little bit um, to help us understand how the Jewish people saw God with us, what that meant to them. Um, so the Babylonian story was called the Enuma Elish, um, and interestingly, it was written over seven tablets, um, just like the Jewish story is, ri- is written over seven days. And uh, the similarities between the two, uh, there's a, I've just got a list of them here. Um, I haven't got the story of the Enuma Elish to read to you. It would probably be quite long and boring. Um, but I'll give you just some of the highlights. Um, So the Enuma Elish begins with, when the sky on high was not named. Genesis begins with, in the beginning. Um, Both of them are kind of temporal openings and they kind of cast our mind back to some sort of undefined ancient date, purposely kind of mythical, you know, when, when the sky on high was not named, in the beginning, or when was the beginning, how long ago. Far too long ago for us to remember, that's the main thing. So it's this kind of mythical distant past. Um, in the Enuma Elish, there's a connection between the giving of names uh, and the and existence and identity, so the gods in it name things. And in Genesis, the naming of living things is important too. Uh, so Adam does that, names all the animals and all the living things. Um, in the Enuma Elish, the, uh, there is this kind of primeval chaos in the beginning. So there's this kind of like darkness and lack of created things. And it's the same in Genesis. It says that darkness was up upon the face of the deep. This kind of like emptiness and chaoticness. Um, in both stories, waters are divided between lower and upper waters. So the, like the firmament that goes between the two. Um, and I've already said about the being seven tablets in seven days. In both stories... Man is created on the sixth. So in the Enuma Elish, it's the sixth tablet. In the Genesis story, it's on the sixth day. Um, And also in Genesis 1, uh, the word used for the deep, so when it says the 
the spirit of God was uh, brooding above the face of the deep, or whatever it says, something like that. Um, the word for deep is the word tehom, which has a linguistic similarity to the Babylonian god Tiamat, which was their god of the sea. So there's this kind of connection between the Jewish thought about the sea being the dark chaoticness and the Babylonian thought about their, their god of the sea, which was this dark god. So there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of similarities there, um, but they don't necessarily, that doesn't make, make them the same story. And actually, when, when you then get into the detail of it, they're very different, but in really interesting ways, in, in really kind of subversive um, and contrasting ways, which I think is really helpful for us to understand Genesis. So I'm going to look at some of the differences now. Um, so the first thing is that Genesis is monotheistic, so one God. The Enuma Elish is polytheistic, loads of gods. We'll get into that in a little bit more detail in a minute. I'm just going to list them out first. Um, in the Enuma Elish, as with almost all other Near Eastern and, and other creation myths that, are, that we're aware of, um, creation is accomplished through some kind of violence. There's loads of warring and death, and it's almost like very similar to war wars that are going on on earth it's almost like a reflection of reality rather than something different and something better um, whereas in genesis you don't get any sense of violence it's there's a, there's a profound sense of control and order and peace that the that there was chaos there was this kind of darkness on the face of the deep but then god comes and everything he does is putting it back into order it's not it's not a it's not an accident as a result of some violent war that's going on in the Enuma Elish, um, the gods use magic. Um, they have this kind, of, so they have a, a source of power that's outside of themselves for them to do whatever they want to do. Whereas God just speaks; it, the power is all within Himself. Um, the Babylonian gods are each identified with different parts of nature, like a lot of other polytheistic uh, systems that we we would know about. Um, but God. In, in Genesis is not identified with any particular part of nature. He's, he is kind of separate above nature, um, but also intrinsically connected with it because he's creating it, but he's not one or, one or, one or the other. Um, in Genesis, God forms the heavens and the earth in the first three days, uh, whereas in the Enuma Elish, that doesn't take place till the fourth day. That's you know, perhaps a little bit more arbitrary, but it's still a difference. Um, in Genesis, man is created from clay or dust to rule over creation. In the Enuma Elish, man is created from God's from a God's blood, um, and for the purpose of being slaves of that God. There's a big difference there. Um, and then, just as a general kind of um, like a literary thing, the chapters in, in Genesis are creation epic poem in the Enuma Elish within its historical context um, it was not really a creation story but more of a praise uh, like, almost like a psalm to their god so it's got a very different purpose to it um, giving praise to a god rather than giving definition to a culture's history so I'm just going to look a bit more at three of those aspects which I think are really interesting. So first is the monotheism versus polytheism. So in the, in the Enuma Elish, it starts out with two 
entities, they're not really gods, says that they're not gods, and they mix and then they create two gods, and then they create another couple of gods, and then those gods create a few more. Um, and you get this kind of like mixture and unfolding of lots and lots of different gods. Uh, and actually, kind of the narrative is much more similar to Adam and Eve having their children and them having more and more children. So it's much more like a reflection of man rather than something different, something bigger than that. Um, in the Genesis account, God has this sense of like plurality, to say our, let us make man in our image, um, which is suggested to be a precursor of Trinity. But fundamentally, it's one God. It speaks with a single voice, has a single purpose. Um, in polytheism, typically... There's an array of gods which have responsibility for all different aspects of life. So we said about them being identified with different parts of nature. And often some of them are good and some of them are bad. They also fight with each other. They vie for power. Uh, and there's no kind of clarity of central purpose or ownership that there's, that there's kind of one right way or one uh, good way of this, of this proceeding. It's about who can get the best of it and then they take control for a bit. Um, Babylonian polytheism in the Enuma Elish was exactly that way. It's all about fighting uh, and competing for their selfish whims. Um, but in Genesis, we've got one God with one mind and one purpose. There's no infighting. There's no doubt about his goodness or the goodness of his creation. Everything he does, every verse is punctuated by that. And he saw it and it was good. He saw it and it was good. He saw it and it was good. Everything was good. It creates a really different relationship between man and God, I think, um, from one where the gods are this kind of unfathomable, chaotic entities, kind of separate and very different, but also weirdly reflective of, of just the same way that mankind behaves. Uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing to aspire to um, with these gods. There's nothing to kind of venerate, really, um, other than the fact that they are powerful and that they might kill you. Um, Whereas the God in Genesis, there's no sense of his violence. There's no sense of needing to fear this God. Um, and there's no sense of confusion about his purpose or what he's doing. He's knowable, he's understandable. Um, and you can't kind of accidentally choose the wrong side by picking the wrong God. It's just, it's just one God. The second thing that I think is really interesting is, is the violence aspect. So in the Enuma Elish, after creating all of these many gods, they fall out and they start killing each other. Um, and then they create a few more gods to help them to kill the others a bit better. And then they create some monsters to help, to help kill the other gods. Um, and again, it's just this sense of, you know, these gods are kind of a reflection of man. They're just like what man is doing on Earth. Um, except that they're doing it on, you know, on a kind of more spectacular stage. Um, in Genesis, there's none of that. God is he's separate and he's perfect, and he creates man in his own image, and there's no violence in that creation. He speaks and the things exist, and it's calm and it's controlled, and it's not volatile and it's not chaotic. There's a sense also that with the Babylonian gods, they will regularly and willingly create purposely evil things, uh, to, to help enact their will um, whereas nothing that God creates is evil, everything is good um, it's all for the purpose of fruitfulness not destruction um, it's for the purpose of filling the earth um, there is he does say about taking dominion over it but 
later in Genesis, the way that dominion works out is very different. It's not about ruling over it. It's not about power and violence. The Babylonian gods fight and kill and deceive and scheme. Um, but strangely enough, uh, and again, this is a real contrast to what we get from Genesis, when the Babylonian gods do that, they're, they're praised for it. When they, when they destroy the other gods and they kill them and they take power and they become the most powerful god, they are then the worshipped god. Whereas our god, Genesis, the, the god of Genesis, the Jewish god, isn't like that at all. Um, it's not about gaining power. He's already in power. He doesn't have to kill or be violent to, to, to have that power. And there's no, there's no struggle. He, he creates and he gives and he's actually self-sacrificial in the way he gives. He doesn't make any claims of power or lordship over his creation because he hasn't got that kind of insecurity that you see um, with these other gods. Um, instead, he actually gives his creation power and authority over his own creation, um, which is you know, really kind of self-sacrificial. And as we know from when Jesus comes much later, the whole idea of like creation uh, and ruling over it um, which God gave us as a central purpose in Genesis but became much kind of mired over the centuries. Jesus comes to redefine it and he says that, you know, when, when you lead in, in my way, it's not about lording it over people. It's about leading as a servant. Um, and, that's, and that's exactly what God does in Genesis 2. He puts, he puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and he, and he asks them to tend to it. So that their rulership, their dominion of creation is through service. It's through looking after this garden. It's not through going around and slaying people and being violent and building castles. Um, which brings us neatly to the third point that I wanted to look at, which is man's purpose uh, in, in being created. So in the Enuma Elish, um, the God who eventually creates man says he will use his own blood to do it, but then eventually uses another god's blood to do it, so kills another god um, to create man. Um, so it's not self-sacrificial, it's not self-giving. And then he says that his reason for doing it is so that they can be slaves to him. Um, and he goes on after that to command that Babylon is built for him uh, out of brick as a sanctuary, which is, we, it also appears in the Genesis story, but as the Tower of Babylon in a more kind of ill-fated version of the story. Um, so compared to that, in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are these loving creations. You know, God breathes into them his very own essence. Um, it's almost like a picture of a, like an artist, like captivated by his creativity or a doting father uh, loving on his children. Um, it's not directly sacrificial, um, you know, we don't get that sacrifice until Jesus comes and shows us that aspect of his nature even more directly. Um, but there is a sacrifice, as I've already mentioned, in, in God forming all of this creation and then being willing to take the risk of giving this man dominion over it, giving him uh, rule over it. There's something intrinsically sacrificial about that that we probably, those of us that are parents, have experienced. I know that like working with Zeke on like a school project or something like that, um, you know, he might need to 
build a model of something and I know that I can definitely build a model at least as good as a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. So if I did it, then it would be the best one in the class. Um, but, but I know that that's not the purpose. The purpose of it is that Zeke needs to learn, he needs to grow, he needs to find the joy in creating something. Otherwise, he'll never be as good as me. Um, <laughs> or, or hopefully much better than me. Um, and it can be, so it can be tempting then, I find, to, to let go of it in a dismissive way. Oh, you just do it, Zeke. You know, if it's rubbish, it's rubbish. It's your responsibility. Uh, and I've, you know, I've done that enough times as well. Um, the hard thing is to stay involved but to not interfere, to not take over. And that's, that's, the way, that's what we see with God in the Genesis story. He's still there. He hasn't just disappeared. He hasn't just left Adam and Eve to look after this garden and stop caring about them. But he's also not doing it for them. So I, I give Zeke suggestions, some of which he listens to. Um, and sometimes I directly help, but I try to hold back unless he directly asks me to. And even then, I try to advise him first, encouraging him to try for himself before I do. I think this is a really similar picture to what we have in Eden with God. And I think it's a, it's a really, really interesting and beautiful picture of how God is with us um, when we think about it in that kind of fathering relationship. Um, so we know uh, after that point in the garden, you know, God asked them to tend to the garden and look after all the trees and just this one rule, just please don't eat from that tree. And then they do. And that's the fall. Um, and suddenly their eyes see the world differently. Uh, this isn't a blissful, innocent existence in communion with their God anymore. They suddenly feel insecure and they're embarrassed of their nakedness. Um, God finds them and talks to them and then they start pointing fingers at each other. And all of a sudden, actually, this is becoming a bit more like the Unima Elish again. This is about disruption and division. Um, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent. The serpent, interestingly, is part of creation, the thing that they were asked to rule over and have dominion over and to care for. And so the unity between the man and the woman and the man in creation is broken um, and they're no longer trusted to keep tending that garden and instead they end up being separated from their home. And it can the way they're separated can read like a punishment from God you can also read it like a simple pronouncement that these are the natural consequences of the choices that they've made um, and and the position that they've put themselves in by making this choice Um, but still God doesn't hide himself from them they hide themselves from God and it's really important to note that it's it's at that point that their relationship starts to become clouded Um, you know after this, Cain and Abel start to gather sacrifices to God. You know, where, where does that appear in, in the Adam and Eve's version of Genesis? It's just this, this bizarre kind of cut-off, but it's, but it's man that's hiding. It's not God that's hiding. God's initial response in the garden when they hid wasn't anger. It wasn't to throw them out immediately. It was more of an invitation. After they'd eaten and hid, he just asked, where are you? Um... You know, do we think that God actually didn't really know where they were? Or is it a bit more, again, like a child, you know, you come in and there's a pot of paint spilt on the floor. What happened? You can see that the paint has been spilt on the floor. 
but what you what you're getting at is is you're actually trying to find some reconciliation some restoration of this situation you know, how did this come to be how can we learn from it so that it doesn't happen again that's kind of the underlying question and i think that's i think that's what god is asking there um it's not that he doesn't know where they are he's just he's just giving them an opportunity an invitation to be reconciled adam's response is to explain that he hid because of his nakedness and then to blame eve um God follows up with Eve, and again, rather than reconciliation, she blames the serpent. And suddenly this kind of seed of division has been sown, and it's kind of fallen apart very, very quickly. And the creation that they've been given to rule over is blamed for the transgression. Um, God's intention is unity, um, but the enemy's intention is division, and that is unfortunately what's happening here. Um, It's interesting to note uh not to get on my i'm not going to get political but um we can't stop hearing about brexit at the moment and whichever side you're on the thing that i find most most fascinating is just how divisive it has become in like this really kind of polarized i've never known it in my life my short lifespan um like the the intensity of the fury on both sides and i think it's really important for us as Christians, however it ends up working out, who's, who knows? I mean, it's in a couple of weeks, isn't it? And we still don't really know what's going to happen. Um, but I think as as children of God, that part of our role has got to be to try and bring people back together again, regardless of what side they were on, what side they are on. There'll be so many fingers pointing, so many people to blame for things that have gone wrong. You know, it'll be, it'll be the Remainers' fault for it being too soft or the Brexiters' fault for it being too hard. Whatever it is, we're all still together fundamentally, and that's what we need to find is our, is our commonality and our unity in it. Um, so yeah, not not too political. Um, so so back in Genesis, um, so there's, the fall has happened. There's this division, this seed has been planted, and the inevitable outcome is is rolling out. Um, these Adam and Eve have been separated from the garden. Um, God's desire is not to be apart from Adam and Eve. That's not how he created them. That was not that was not his intention. His intention was to be with them in this garden. His heart has not changed, but ours has. God is with us. So in Genesis, God is a loving creator, a devoted artist, a guiding counsellor. He creates and gives sacrificially, um, and he responds graciously to us, and that has not changed. The history of the Old Testament sees century of man struggling with this loss of, of, of the fact that he's hiding and he can't and he, and, he, and he blames God. He thinks that God is hiding from him, but actually we're the ones that have been hiding. We're the ones that have turned our face. Um, God hasn't changed. And when Jesus comes, he confirms this. He shows us that actually his desire is for us. His desire is for our unity, you know, that's what he prays for his disciples, that they would be one. Um, his vision for our role in creation, that we would still be these rulers of creation, but not in this kind of dominating, oppressive sense that we've managed to develop over the centuries, but actually as servants, as, as, as children tending to the garden. And also his sacrificial love for us, which he demonstrates by giving literally his life for us. Um, So yeah, that's my picture for today of 
how we see God with us from the Genesis story. I'm just going to close with a brief prayer. Well, Jesus, help us to understand who you created us to be, uh, that you loved us and you still love us, and that you are with us in that way still, as a loving creator, as a doting father. Help us to see our role in stewarding this creation, in bringing unity wherever we are, and that that role hasn't changed, that you haven't changed, and by your grace we might see that creation restored. Amen. Thank you. Thirty-five minutes. Oh, mate, that's just just too high bench, mate. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Really enjoyed it.